Welcome to Expulsion at 50, my podcast series documenting the expulsion of Ugandan Asians from a diversity of angles and perspectives. Between 1972 and 1975, an estimated 80,000 Asians fled Uganda. The majority ended up in the UK as refugees. Others went to Canada, India, Kenya, the United States, and various other European countries. Today, I'm talking to Dola Rasani, currently a life coach and an international development consultant from a home in South Africa. And I'm Shahina Faisal, also an East African immigrant born in Tanzania, arrived in London in 1971 and now living in Greece. So Dola, can you describe your experiences of your childhood in Uganda, where you grew up, your family environment, how was it for you? My father was born in India. My mother was born in Kenya. But all of us, all the siblings, six of us, were born in Uganda. I'm the youngest. The words I would use to describe my first 12 years was safe, secure, stable. It was a kind of a typical middle-class Gujarati household. Uh, yeah. my, family, my father worked for a German car company called Dichi Dobi. They used to sell Datsun cars from Japan and Mercedes-Benz. We lived above the showroom in Kampala, on Kampala Road. And downstairs in the front was the showroom and behind was the workshop. Eight apartments. So there was um, Gujaratis, um, there was a Sikh family, there was a Goan family. We had a ready-made playground. We had lots of uh, kids to play with. So I was never alone. I would say I was kind of feral. I was always outside. And the one thing I was always very good at was sports. It just yeah, came very naturally to me. You know, I loved playing cricket. Tennis, badminton, played a lot of um, galori, you know, marbles. Played a lot with shells, you know, inside. Uh, Gilly Danda, that was a fierce game. Played cards, played carom. I remember making kites, especially in January when we used to have Uttran. We used to make bearing cars. You know, that was like my favorite because there was this workshop uh, workshop, and then there was this slope and we made these bearing cars from the car. And my God, it was so dangerous, but it was, it was like an adrenaline, adrenaline rush. Aside from sports equipment, we never bought any toys. We just made them all ourselves. I never had any dolls, for example, as, as toys. My mother was fiercely independent. I think she was, you know, way ahead of her time. And although she didn't work, she was incredibly active in the Maila Mandal, you know, like the women's club. She drove a car. And I remember in her 40s, for some reason, she, she had some kidney issues and, and they, they told her, you must go and learn how to swim. So she did that. I would also say my mother was very house proud, you know, very well dressed. She was an excellent vegetarian cook and 
she was also very good with her hands. Um, I always remember her, you know, doing embroidery and macrame and knitting. And my father, he was, he was a very mild man compared to my mother. And he worked downstairs and he would come home at lunchtime. Then he would have a little siesta. Then he would go back downstairs and then at five o'clock he would come home and then he would go and play badminton. Wow. So that's how I, we all started playing badminton. And I was actually very good. So in primary school, I actually did really well in Uganda and then continued in, in, in the UK. So as far as school was concerned, uh, I went to two, two primary schools, uh, Shimoni and then the second one was an international school called Nakasero. The way I would describe my, my experience of that school was it, was it was international. So we had a lot of, you know, expatriates there, both teachers, you know, from Europe and from the US, and also, you know, children of, of ambassadors. And, and also we had children of, of ministers. So it was very... It was multiracial yeah. and it was a very good school, I would say, not just uh, academically, but, you know, they really pushed us with sports and with, with art as well. Like many other Indian families, you know, we would go to, um, at the weekends, you know, we'd go to the drive-in cinema, you go to the botanical gardens in Entebbe. Yeah, I remember, you know, watching Daktari on, on the TV. I remember going to see Flipper at the cinema. Yeah, you know, there, were, there was libraries, so there was like Enid Blyton books. And so I would, you know, we collected coins, we collected stamps. And one of the things that I really, really used to love was around April, I think it was, every year, we had the East African Safari Rally. Yes, yes. And because quite a number of the top drivers were dry, you know, were in Datsuns, they used to come to the to the to the workshop. And yeah, there was this whole PR machinery around it. So we would get amazing things, you know, stickers and goodies. And 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 I we used to just love that. And we used to, you know, have this thing about the map and we used to have a book. Where were they? And you know, plotting their routes. Did a lot of things outside of the formal schooling, being creative with our hands and you know, playing. Something that I cherish a lot. Every year my father would take some time off in August and we would drive from Kampala to Nairobi because my mother's side of the family were all in Kenya. We would get in the car, my mum would make debras and you know all kinds of foods and we would leave early and then we would drive from Kampala and then I always remember how cool it used to get when we went to, into the Rift Valley and then we would buy you know we, stone fruits like plums and peaches which we never had in Kampala and we would see monkeys and yeah and then we would go to uh, Nairobi and from there we often went to Mombasa and I also remember my sisters you know who are older than I was they used to my parents used to put them on the train in Kampala so they were like 
in their teens, you know, 15, 16. And this is a beautiful thing about it was that nobody ever spoke about it not being safe. They would be put on the train in Kampala and they would go and visit my cousins in Nairobi. And, you know, a couple of my sisters were amazing. They, they were really active in the mountain club in, in their school in Kololo. You know, they went up Mount Elgin. They used to go camping and they both climbed Kilimanjaro. And my sister, yeah. Bautna, I think she was only 16 when she went up Kilimanjaro. Wow. And in those days, it wasn't just like a, a quick, you know, let's do it in five days. It was, yeah. there used to be a, an outward bound mountain school at Loi Tokitok. And yeah. you went there and you spent like two, three weeks. Yeah. And they, I remember her telling me, you know, they used to have to swim in, the, in the, that cold swimming pool. And they used to have these really hectic drills, you know. And here's this puny little Gujarati girl. It kind of toughen you up in, in ways that maybe you didn't really think about at the time. From this very safe and secure background with lots of activities and lots of exposure to different cultures, different types of people, this event happened in 1972, which transformed people's lives. It changed their lives completely and scattered them in different parts of the world. Announcement about the expulsion when it was made in August 1972 where were you? 12 at the time. And although I don't remember the actual announcement, I do remember quite clearly the chaos and the confusion that followed. So at the yeah. time, there was only my brother and myself at home. Two of my sisters were studying in India and the other two were married and living in Kenya. What I do remember are all these phone calls every day, my father talking to my sisters and my, my brother-in-laws in Kenya. And, you know, of course, they're like always asking, you know, what's happening and what's the plan. My mother, I remember, had a British passport. My father, it seems, had a Ugandan passport, but something about it not being formalized. So he then managed to have the rights to go to the UK. But, you know, my father was 58 years old huh? and he hated the cold. Unlike many other sort of Asian families, particularly, you know, upper middle class in, in, in Kampala, we didn't, you know, have a nest egg somewhere outside Uganda. You know, he wasn't thinking about going anywhere. Leaving Uganda was kind of the last thing on his mind. Do remember, you know, is, is the confusion and especially about papers and rights and, you know, seeing lots of queues everywhere. The bank accounts were frozen. You know, my father, I think, was jointly owning a house somewhere and that was also all frozen. My grandfather, which is my father's father, had Ugandan citizenship. He lived with my aunt in Bombo, which is about 35 kilometers 
outside of Kampala. And his situation was quite clear. You know, he, he had a British passport, so, um, a Ugandan passport, so he wasn't going to go anywhere. But my aunt, who, is, who was living with him, so she must have been 61 or something. So she had a British passport. Mm. So she had to leave. So okay. this is where, you know, families got split. Yeah. And that, that I think also is a common experience. Once it was decided we were going to go, you know, I, I was in my last year at primary school, so I had to leave. What I do remember is, is, is um, the packing. My mother, being house proud, you know, had, had a shitload of stuff, right? spending a lot of time every day packing things in newspaper, wrapping them in the newspaper and packing them into the tea chest. The idea was that the tea, the tea chests would go from Kampala by road or by train to Mombasa. And then they would go by ship to the UK. The common experience was that yeah, things just didn't, didn't arrive. So I think that was really hard for my mother when, yeah. when the, the stuff finally arrived and she thought, oh my God. Because in a way, it was like an attachment. You know, it was something, yeah. an attachment to her past, you know. Hearing gunshots was quite common. Yeah. Seeing tanks on the road, seeing army people on the road. Um, so, you know, the kind of the Kampala being very safe, very peaceful, all of a sudden started to become a different place and, and a dangerous place to be. I think people in the beginning didn't believe it. I think there was a lot of people who just thought, oh, you know, Gando Che, mm. you know, it will pass. You know, in a Sapno Aivo Chip and, you know, Tekara Avi Jase. But yeah, it just never went away. You had these 90 days to pack your things, get the family together, and then leave. The ones who had British passports had to leave. It was compulsory. Towards uh, yeah, October, November, things just started to get unsafe. And so people who had Ugandan passports started to see if they could also get out. And so they started applying you know, in different embassies. And then, of course, after the deadline, when things became very unsafe. So those who had Ugandan passports then had became stateless. And then, okay. you know, then they, then they became um, under the auspices of uh, UNHCR. We left in uh, early October, you know, this heightened insecurity, which was, you know, getting closer and closer to you. So, for example, there were lots of roadblocks everywhere, you know, and we, we were not used to seeing tanks on the streets and we were not used to seeing, you know, army personnel with big guns. There was also looting going on, you know, of shops because of course, a lot, you know, the Asian shops were very visible. They, they controlled the retail economy. So my mother, it's very interesting how she must have heard this, that, Indian women, you know, were being harassed at the airport for their jewelry. Indian women and Dagino, you know, they go mm -hmm. together. And my mother also had gold. So what did she do? 
because she was, um, she used to do these macrame bags, you know? So she opened it up and she sewed all her jewelry in the base of a bag. Yeah. And then she covered it up. And then, of course, in those days, we didn't have, you know, those scanners in the airport. That's how she got all her jewelry out. So you left in October, uh, you left Kampala. Uh, where did you go? We knew we were going to England. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm sure there was also some excitement. We knew about Monopoly and we knew about, you know, I always remember, yeah, we knew about snow and stuff like that. And I guess, you know, we, there was a, you know, mixture of excitement and, 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 and trepidation, yeah? And I think for my parents, it was just like, okay, let's just get on with it. You know, let's just get out of here uh, in one piece. I think for many families, that was like the priority, just mm -hmm. especially as things started to really churn and get, get really unstable and unsafe. It was just like, you know, in Nikrita, you know, as, as quickly as possible. So we got on a plane and we landed in Stansted. It was autumn. It doesn't matter, you know, for us it was it was cold. It was not only was it cold, but it was wet. And, and, and then coupled with that is that dampness that comes with the cold. And yeah, we, you know, we didn't have long sleeves clothes. We were so ill-prepared. When you got off the plane, how was the reception there? There were people there with, with clothes and, you know, with, with hot drinks. We were put in a bus yeah. and we were taken to a refugee camp. So, the, you know, there were several camps dotted around, around uh, Britain. And many of them were ex-army barracks. So we were in uh, Houdstone, I think it's called, in Somerset, near, in Yeovil. And it was um, dormitory style, no privacy. In that way, you know, you were all you know, in the same in the same dorms, and everything was communal. So you know, you had to go to another place to to have your food. But you know, despite everything, I would say the atmosphere in the camp was actually quite pleasant. They really tried to you know make us feel welcome. And I guess you know, it's also like Somerset country folks, you know. And maybe they were just more curious than anything else. Um, and, and sadly, I would say, you know, we, sh we didn't stay long. So on, on the one hand, you know, people were like, you know, oh my God, we don't want to be here uh, because we want to get out and have a proper normal life. Yes. But in hindsight, I, I wish we hadn't left. We got a house a council house in, in a Harlow, in Harlow Newtown. So Harlow was created, you know, there always used to be a place called Harlow, but that was, then there was the Newtown, which was created from, you know, the overspill, to accommodate yes. the overspill from, from East London. I think that was the worst part of the chapter, yeah. 
It was a horrible place. <laughs> I still feel traumatized when I think about Harlow. The people weren't friendly or were there other things going on? I think it was the combination of everything, you know. Um, you know, to first of all, to remember that I was 12 and yes. a half going on to 13. So I was going into my teenage years. Right. You know, the hormones were flying around, not knowing what yes. that all meant. So we had this house. It had an open fireplace. We used, had to use coal. And um, we had paraffin heaters. Being kind of, you know, from a place where I was always outside and quite, you know, I, I use the word feral. I felt like a caged bird because you didn't go out because it was cold. You didn't go out because there was, uh, yeah, the people weren't terribly nice. So, you know, all of a sudden, there I'm in this house with my parents and I'm like, you know, who are these people? And my parents were traumatized. They were, they were having their own journey of, you know, what has happened to us. You know, and I, and I, and I think it's only with time that I reflected a lot on, you know, what must it be like, like for me now, I'm 60, to do it now. To leave with your suitcase is to leave with 50 pounds and that's it. My father was, he was, he was, he was like many other guys. He was, very, he was a very proud man. He had always provided for his family. And all of a sudden, you know, he was on the dole and he didn't like it. You know, he hated being on the dole. He got a clerical job. I remember at the beginning he was traveling from Harlow and he was working in a shop because somebody we knew had a shop in um, Notting Hill Gate. So imagine going from Harlow all the way to Notting Hill Gate. That's a long way, yes. Yeah. So in Harlow, you know, you'd take the bus to the station and then you would take the train to Liverpool Street and then go all the way. By underground. And then he got a job in Liverpool Street, and so he still had to do the commute. My mother uh, also had to work. So I remember in the beginning, we were all, we were all helping out, making, doing these beading necklaces, yes. because the shop in Notting Hill Gate was like a hippie store kind of selling all these things. So we were all doing that. And then she got an um, industrial sewing machine, and she was doing, you know, pillowcases for a hospital or something was enrolled in a school and that was just a, the most awful place ever you know it was a large comprehensive mm. and you could count the number of people you know weren't, who weren't white on one hand so you know these kids had no experience of dealing with people of other races so you know and at the time you know the media was also you know churning these things up yeah. So I used to get into lots of fights, physical fights. I was called a packy often. And I didn't, didn't know what that was, you know. I was called Woglet often. They were, that was like a nickname that was given to me. And then, you know, I was like saying, no, but I'm Indian. And then they thought you were a red Indian, you know. Then you said, no, you're from Africa. And then they would like think, oh, you were, you were in the trees. Yeah. You know, so I would just say, you know, they were like, ignorant peasants. When I think back to, you know, where I came from, 
yeah. and what you know what I was experiencing now. Like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> but I would say the one thing that has been consistent in my life and probably has saved me was that I was always good at sports. I was okay. useless in the in the in in academia. You know, not that I couldn't do it in Uganda, but here I just, I, was, I, I guess I just had no interest or what. Yeah, yeah. But I played rounders, I played tennis, I played hockey for the school, I went swimming, and I played, I continued playing badminton, I played badminton for Essex as a junior and as a senior. The only thing I got from that school, the four years I was there, was I was awarded the Sports Girl of the Year. My accomplishment from, from school. But, but from this carefree life in Kampala to this kind of sort of a prison or a caged bird, you call it, in Harlow, it's a big contrast. And you found your anchor in sports. My mother, you know, going from a very independent, you know, I would say quite an empowered lifestyle as a woman, as an Indian woman, you know, who was driving everywhere and she never, she never drove ever again. You know, she was pretty traumatized. I've thought a lot about this over the years and she really wanted to go to North London, which is where her friends from Uganda oh. had, had settled. Well, the, the, you couldn't buy masalas in, in, in Harlow, so we had to go to East London or North London or wherever. So I think she was right. She yearned to be out of there. Harlow was a deep wound for all of us. My father really aged. He definitely lost his mojo. He was a broken man. He became just very withdrawn. Yeah, it was a really hand-to-mouth existence. A couple of years later, my, my sisters had to come from India because they, were, you know, they couldn't complete their studies because there was no money. So at least then you know, they came and then they started working and things got a little bit better economically. My mother is the matriarch. Yeah. <laughs> she kept things going. So she worked. I also started working quite early, you know. I think I was about 15 or 16. We were still in Harlow, and I, were, I became an Avon lady. Okay. Ding yes. dong, Avon calling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I used to have this little briefcase where, you know, I had all the samples, and I, that's where I really got an insight into white working class culture. And it wasn't very pleasant. In uh, 76, we did an exchange from Harlow. You know, my mother's still alive. She's 98. Yes. Still lives in Newham, in that same house. In your later life, um, did you ever go back to Uganda? Or have you ever been back to Uganda? I always had this hankering. And I always felt there was an incompletion from the fact that we left. It wasn't voluntary. No. We were forced to leave. For many years, I was always drawn to, you know, what was happening in Uganda, reading about things, you know. And I, it was in, um, I think it was in 86, 87, probably 87. I, I happened to be in Kenya 
because my sister, one of my sisters was still living there. So I was visiting them. And I was just incredibly lucky to have had the opportunity to just take a flight and go to uh, Uganda. And I spent something like three days. We knew somebody who was there. And she said to me, I just come, you know, and I spent three days with her. And all I wanted to do was just walk around with my camera. I went to the house we used to live in. I went to the school. I went to the market. And I took lots of photos, you know, to show my mother and, and other family members. Were there any emotions you were going through while taking photos and filming? Things were in a really sorry state. People were broken. Yeah. It wasn't just property was broken, but people were broken because they were tired of civil war. They'd been put through, through the mill, you know, with, mm. with, uh, firstly with Idi Amin and then Abote. And, you know, for, for so many years, they had so much instability. And they were just tired, you know. But also, I think it was always, and, I, and this happens every time I go to Uganda, the most friendly people ever. And I never felt uh, unsafe. I never felt threatened. And, you know, I remember going to my school and, and, and yeah, you know, Karibu, come and have a look. I've actually been really fortunate that I've been back several times. And so the first time, of course, was really powerful. And then 28 years later, in 2000, I took my mother back. Right. The two of us went back. Because again, we happened to be in Kenya and I said to her, come, let's go. Yeah. And she also was quite emotional, you know, just seeing everything. But I think also it was putting it to bed without regret and without remorse. And I think so many years had passed and you think, okay, you know, my jingia, navi jingia, England mache, you know, and that's okay to mark this closure of this old chapter and, and then stay in the new chapter. You know, I've been back several times because of my work. So, yes. you know, and I went back last year, in, uh, for example. Um, so every time I go, I see different things and I have a different experience. Nearly 50 years ago, since you started your journey from Uganda, what have been the main lessons and insights for you? When I think back, like, you know, in terms of what did we learn from this experience and what is relevant today, especially because we've had so many waves of, of you know, crises and so many different types of refugees. Top of my list would be no one wants to leave their home country. It is something that happens. Uh, it is the last resort. The other thing is leaving voluntarily. As I say, for example, as an adult, as an economic migrant, is completely different from being thrown out. Reflect on, on the age factor. You know, would it, been, would it have been better if I had been much younger? Like yeah. six, seven? Or if I had been, you know, 18. Now being caught in this middle thing, you know, like I said before, you know, I'm, you know, things are happening anyway in your body and in your emotions. And then you have this other thing. So that I think was, yeah, it was, it was a shame. 
And then when I think back to, you know, the Ugandan Asians as, as a group, as a community, we have really demonstrated resilience and tenacity. People have ended up in different corners of the world and they've really made a go of it. We need to really um, dig deep into our humanity and, and, you know, the words that come up for me are more about inclusivity and diversity as opposed to you know, nationalism and exclusivity. Mm. For my parents, you know, over the years, I, I, they, they were very grateful for the, for the material help they received. Um, but having said that, I feel, you know, we never really paid any attention to mental health and well-being. Yeah. Those stars are deep. The Ugandan Asians were lucky to get out because, you know, Idi Amin committed much worse atrocities on his own people. 500,000 odd people were butchered. It was genocide. And what happened to him? Yeah. You know, he got That's refuge in, in Saudi Arabia. There are many things that we worry about, you know, yes. today, but it's the same as what we were worrying about then. And, the rhetoric doesn't seem to have changed. And there are still many dictators like him around in the world today. If you would like to share your personal story for a future episode of Expulsion at 50, please get in touch. The email address is expulsion50 at gmail.com or on Twitter at expulsion50. Till next time, take care and stay safe.